Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Sea Change Podcast, your go-to show to learn about the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating on the American shorelines. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and I am so excited for all of you to meet my guest today because, once again, it's a family affair, and this is an extra special Father's Day episode, and you guessed it, today I am joined by my father, Peter Valente. Dad, thank you so much for joining me and allowing me to pepper you with questions for the next hour or so. Well, thanks for having me. I'll uh, I'll try to do my best. <laughs> um, and before we dive into it, let's take a short break to hear from our sponsors. So, you know, the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News today are funded in part by our supporters out in the world. We've got a couple we always like to thank. Dune Doctors from Pensacola, Florida, led by Frederic Barisette, the owner and operator of that company. They do a lot of great dune restoration restoration work all along the uh, Gulf of Mexico and in the Atlantic coast. If you're a homeowner, a condo owner, a neighborhood association, a city or a county, and you're going to fix your dunes, think about Dune Doctors and find them at dunedoctors.com. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Coastal Engineering Consultants, headed up by Michael Poff. Uh, they're located there in Naples, Florida, just one of the best engineering firms we've ever ever had the pleasure of working with. Uh, you can learn more about Coastal Engineering Consultants at CoastalEngineering.com. And our good friend Bill Worsham heads the Coastal Division at LJA Engineering, located here in Austin, Texas, but 28 offices in around the Gulf of Mexico. Great coastal engineering firm. If you're looking for coastal engineering services in Texas and off the Gulf, give our friend Bill Worsham a call. Find them at LJA.com. And we're back. Listeners, you all had a chance to meet my mom, Kelly, during my Mother's Day episode, which was a really fantastic conversation. So for any of you that haven't checked that episode out yet, I suggest going back and giving it a listen or pairing it with this one to get a well-rounded view of why I love the ocean and outdoors as much as I do, because both my mom and dad were very influential in that. And so now I am thrilled to introduce you all to my dad. So dad, you have lived a really interesting life. And I think that there is a lot of insight that our listeners can gain from hearing about your experiences growing up in Maine, your Coast Guard career, and now your work with oyster aquaculture and ocean conservation. But let's start by rewinding all the way back to your early life. Will you talk to me a little bit about what it was like growing up in Maine and do you think growing up there influenced your love for the outdoors? Oh, but by all means, uh, that's kind of the main, that's what you do. You, it's pretty pretty remote, I guess, in areas. And growing up uh, in a young uh, child childhood age, uh, I guess till I was in sixth grade up in Farmington, Maine, uh, we had a ski slope nearby we could ski but also uh 
places for me to run in the woods and go fishing and, and uh, hunting and that kind of stuff. And uh, also the uh, family camps that we had and the grandparents, uh, I guess it just was a natural thing for us to do, you know, have your fishing rod or go out in the boats or, or, or what have you, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, you already mentioned it with the hunting and fishing and, you know, I was, before I, I, uh, interviewed you, I was sitting down and kind of reflecting on our relationship. And now that I've known you for nearly 30 years, um, you know, hunting and fishing are really central to your identity. And it's very apparent to those people who know you that they are major passions of yours, but what I'm not so clear on is when exactly did you start hunting and fishing and who taught you? Well, I think, you know, my father probably uh, was the most influential, you know, spending time uh, taking us doing that kind of stuff. But also uh, grandparents, as, as you know, we've we have uh, two different camps that we we can go to. One's on the ocean and one's on the lake. So uh uh, the one up to Ibimi Pond or Ibimi Lake, uh, you know, at a young age, you had a, a fishing rod with a bobber and worms, and you were out catching whatever you could off the dock. Or when your grandparents, uh, grandfather, roughly uh, most of the time, would take you out and, and uh, we'd go perch fishing at night, and uh, and then down to uh, the other place in Goolsboro, Maine. Uh, Grandpa Paul, he loved his uh, trout fishing on the brook. So there was a a, uh, a brook close by to where the camp sits on the ocean that we would go and uh, catch a, a mess of trout and bring them back and, and uh, cook them up. So I guess that's probably where a lot of it uh, started, you know. And then I, I, I just obviously it, it just drew me in and uh, – always was a passion and an outlet and and so I guess that's where it, where it really began. Mhm. And and yeah, so hunting and fishing are both big in Maine and they're also big in our family and you know, even though I personally don't hunt, I'm I'm like that black sheep in the family that is one of the only ones that doesn't hunt. Um, but I do enjoy casting a, a lure and bobber out from time to time. And it, it seems like the experience of going outdoors and hunting or fishing lead to really important bonding moments for you to share with the people that you're with and also between yourself and nature, do you find that the connection between humans and nature and the wild is a really big draw for you to participate in those activities? I, I think when I was was younger, uh, it was more about the success of catching and you know that kind of stuff. Now it's not so much; it's just getting out and uh, observing. You know whether I'm trout fishing on a stream, observing other wildlife. Uh, I don't know. It's just, a, it just allows me to get away from the, the daily, uh, I don't know what you call it, distractions or whatever. Just kind of, uh, it's good for my mind, I guess you'd say, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, uh, 
you know, even at this age where I'm approaching 60, if I take a, my trout rod and go out back here to the stream we have, I, it brings me back to being, you know, when I'm a kid, you know, it just kind of makes me feel young again, I guess. So uh, I don't know if that really answers your question, but. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that everybody has their own outlets in their ways to calm their mind or clear their mind. And I think for a lot of listeners of this show, because I think naturally you're going to get people that are interested in the outdoors and the ocean and, and nature. Um, many people are probably going to relate to that, whether they're hunting, fishing, or just hiking or, you know, sitting outside and reading or going for a walk. Um, just taking a moment for yourself to be surrounded by, you know, that natural beauty can be really therapeutic. Um, so yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think I connect to that. Um, even if I am not out there hunting, I think there's a lot of the same principle involved with that is just taking some time for yourself and connecting, you know, checking in with yourself and connecting to the outdoors is uh, really important. Well, and so now, oh, go ahead. Yeah. And I mean, as you know, uh, where we're living now is kind of like a, a wildlife preserve here. And, and uh, the enjoyment I have just getting up in the morning, having a cup of coffee and look out and there's a deer and, um, you know, she might have a fawn or two with her this time of year or, or watching the turkeys or just have the window open in the morning and you, and you hear the goblin in the spring. And it's, uh, I don't know, to me, it's, it's pretty cool, you know? Yeah, it is a pretty amazing spot that you and mom have where you can you can just sit and watch the world go by a little bit, but you you develop these connections with some of the animals that live around the house. They're just so fun to watch um, because many of them you see from the time that they're young, especially the turkeys. We have like the world's craziest turkeys that live around uh, your house. They're so funny. They're just a source of endless enjoyment for me because they're always doing something very unexpected or silly. Um, you know, I could sit there and watch them all day. So it's it's truly a special spot. So now I'd like to talk a little bit more about our, our family and your career. Um, in the next couple of questions, I also asked mom. So for the sake of fairness, I'm going to ask them to you too. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about um, when you met mom and what drew you to her. Well, I I moved uh, from Farmington to uh, Cumberland when I was going into the sixth grade. And I guess I probably met her and her girlfriends on the bus. And I was a new guy in town, I guess, new kid, new boy in town. So they, they, uh, they teased me pretty good. They picked on me quite a bit, you know. <laughs> I was probably an awkward kid at that age or whatever. But um, so that's kind of where it's where I first met her. But uh, you know, going up through junior high, she was into uh, sports, and I was into sports. And you know, she was cute, but she, you know, uh, and then kind of things developed from there once we get into high school and and. Uh, she was still active in in sports and a, and a good looking uh, girl and and had a good personality and and uh, 
laughs and jokes and sometimes she gets tired of my jokes now but uh (laughs) i guess uh things kind of developed that way and uh and like i said she was really athletic and and uh, i was too and i guess uh when we were seniors in high school we were uh voted as most athletic in our class for uh, male and female so that was kind of unique and uh she she went off to college and for a couple of years up in vermont and, and i uh i guess i was young when when uh i graduated i was 17 and i probably liked sports and fishing and hunting more than i did my classroom stuff so I decided to go to work for my father at that time. And what what were you doing with, uh, just so the listeners know, what kind of work were you doing with Grandpa? Uh, he had a, a ship family business in Portland, Portland, Maine. And uh, basically what they do is they, they uh, supply the oil tankers and barges and stuff with uh, any supplies that they may need when they come into Portland. And he had a, like a 40-foot boat and we'd uh, we'd get the orders and fill them and put them in the boat and go out and take them alongside the the tankers and whatever and and uh put their supplies on board so that's kind of where after high school that's kind of what i i did for a while work for him i i dug clams commercially uh uh when I had time between doing that and, and then, uh, I don't know, I guess I was digging clams one day and, and realized I, I needed to do something more. I thought about going back to college, but then I happened to see a, a small advertisement in the, uh, the main sportsman magazine actually, uh, advertising for the coast guard. So I picked up the phone and I called them and they said, come on in. And so I, went in did some paperwork and and uh joined the joined the coast guard and so what was the rest of that process like after you joined so what was re- required of you to get in well yeah you, you, you kind of had to have a clean slate uh, i don't think it was as, was as rigorous back then to, you know sometimes back then if you know, some branches of the service is the if you had to appear before the judge or something, he said, well, you're, you're either going to jail or you're going to the service. But that, that wasn't my case. I, uh, I, I, I got in because I guess, uh, you know, I, I meet the minimum score or at least the minimum score on their uh, tests that they had and, uh, physical abilities. And, and, uh, so then, you, then I, you know, signed some paperwork and went, uh, down to uh, Cape May in New Jersey for I don't know if it was eight or twelve weeks of fun in the sun and and uh, <laughs> that was bo- that that was boot camp so uh, <laughs> and from there uh, if you want me to continue I will uh, on to where I went but that's uh, well yeah I was I was gonna just jump in and say that you know from there you and mom from my understanding, spent about 20 years. Um, I guess Paul and I were involved in some of those 20 years, um, uh, moving around every three-ish years or so. And 
most of those moves were completely across the country. So I'm just curious about what some of the most challenging and rewarding aspects of that lifestyle were. Well, I think uh, starting out, uh, you know, going to boot camp and and all, uh, you know, I never thought I'd leave the state of Maine. And I got to boot camp and then I got assigned to a, uh, a buoy tender uh, the Coast Guard cut a redwood in New London, Connecticut. That's a 157-foot buoy tender that took care of the aids navigation down in uh, Long Island Sound in that area. Uh, and then uh, from there, I got accepted to go to a uh, school down in uh, Yorktown, Virginia. And about that time, your mother and I had decided to get married. So I ended up we got married and I ended up having to go to school for like 12 weeks from after we got married in September to, to uh, I don't know, I guess it was almost through January that year. So we had some separation early on in, in our uh, marriage. And then uh, I got a set of orders to go to St. Joseph, Michigan to a uh, small boat station out there it's on the uh, west coast of michigan and uh right on magician uh, lake michigan and uh there i had the opportunity to uh, uh run one of the uh, 44 foot motor lifeboats but to get back to you i guess to your question about mom there was you know she was she had her own job here in, in Maine and she had to pick up and move and and go to someplace that she never knew about just because of of, uh, of my assignment. And uh, so we headed out and, and uh, settled in there and met a, a nice couple, Frank and Judy James, that kind of took us under their wings and uh, uh, great folks. And and we spent two and a half to three years there in St. Joe. Now, when you're traveling around and it's just the two of you, things are not quite as difficult. But uh, I I picked up a couple of uh, advancements when I was at St. Joe. I was a, a bosun mate, third class, when I went out there. And, and uh, I think it was... Uh, January of 85 and two years later I'd put on uh, I'd put on E5 second class petty officer a year after I got there and then a year after that I had advanced to uh, E6 so the phone rang and the assignment officer says hey uh, you can't stay at St. Joe anymore so I can remember this guy's name was Frank Donaldson and he says uh, he was a warrant officer and he says so Pete where do you want to go and I says well I want to go back to Maine and without without skipping a beat he says how does it feel to want <laughs> so, <laughs> so I uh, I says well if, if that's not an opportunity to go to Maine I says uh 
what what is what's available and uh he says well geez this is a great job he says it's out in hawaii and uh it's uh on the coast guard cut of mallow it's a 180 foot buoy tender he says i i spent time on it when i was younger and he says it's a great job you get to see a lot of neat stuff so uh he says go home talk to your wife and, and think about it so i went home talked to kelly and and at the at the time uh we had found out that uh, she was pregnant with our first child paul so uh she said well why not it won't be too hard to to uh have a kid out there and don't have to deal with the additional clothes and that kind of stuff i guess so we uh, we went for an adventure to hawaii and get out there in the middle of april and uh settled in and and i don't think i was there for six weeks got into our coast guard uh, housing that they had out there which was uh i guess they were fourplexes or townhouses or whatever it was adequate but nothing special and and so we're in hawaii and uh well, six weeks after we're there i i took my first uh, long trip uh with the Mallow, we headed down to uh, Samoa and Western Samoa and and a couple other places doing uh, age navigation work and and uh, some fishery stuff. And then, so anyway, that was that was 1987. To, uh, Paul was born in October that year, and so he was. And then you were what, twenty-one months behind, I think. Something like that. Yeah. Nineteen eighty-nine. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, the, you know, we didn't have any support out there. I mean, it's amongst family, which might have been okay, you know, but uh, it was that was some of the challenging part of being young and having children and being in the service with me being gone because some of my trips. You know, that that first trip I was talking about, that's probably about a two-month trip, you know, you're gone. And you come uh-huh. home, and, and then uh, I had another trip in, I guess, guess I'm going to say August. I think we went from August, the middle of August to uh, close to October, middle of October, going to Kwajalein, the Marshall Islands, and then Paul was born. So... Uh, but that that job in itself was was very unique. I, you know, some of my trips were uh, ten thousand miles long on that boat, and seeing some really remote places out in the Pacific. You know, places uh, from a lot of World War II history, Tarawa, Kwajalein. Uh, I went to Bikini Atoll while I was out there. Uh, if you do some research on that, that was uh, where we did some, uh, they did some nuclear testing years ago where they put ships around the islands to see the effects of, of uh, nuclear bombs and, and that kind of stuff. And, uh, a lot more to it than that, but uh, I could get into it, but it, it was very, very unique. And, and then, uh, so that was 87. 
what did I say, 87 to 89, mm -hmm. you were born. And then we moved back to Maine, right? Yeah, we moved to Southwest Harbor. Yeah, Southwest Harbor. So, so quite the stark difference. So for listeners, just picture, you know, living in Hawaii. Um, it's fortunate that both my parents are from Maine, so they knew what to expect. Uh, but then, you know, getting orders to move maybe as far of a move that you could do in the United States, um, you know, from Honolulu to Southwest Harbor, which is on uh, Mount Desert Island in basically right where Acadia National Park is. That's the probably the spot that everyone will be most familiar with. Um, so moving all the way across the country with two small kids um, to go back to Maine for a few years. And so what were you, what were, what were you doing? Um, what were your responsibilities in Southwest Harbor? That was a uh, 65 foot harbor tug called the uh, Shackle. And, and we did uh, aids to navigation work there too, but our primary mission uh, was uh, in the winter time, we would break ice on the Penobscot river. And uh, so we'd leave, we rotated with another vessel, so we'd leave Southwest Harbor, and it would take about, depending on the tides, if the tide was running, uh, it'd take about seven hours from Southwest Harbor to get up to Bangor, and uh, then we'd, we'd tie up, and and uh, we'd break, break the river out. Uh, typically, uh, if the tide was... About two hours, hour and a half before high tide, we'd start breaking, and then probably another couple hours on on the ebb tide, and so uh, that the ice would flush out, you know, and that way uh, barges could get up to Bangor to to uh, deliver their product, whether it be home heating oil, jet fuel, or whatever it was, you know. So uh, that was the primary job uh, for the for that boat. Uh, summer times, like I said, we'd, we'd take care of lights and stuff on the ledges and, and uh, that, that kind of stuff. But what a beautiful area. If you've never been to the Southwest Acadia National Park uh, area, uh, Mount Desert Island, uh, certainly uh, one of the more beautiful places in, in the country. You know, uh, I don't know how many million visitors every summer, but uh, it was... Uh, yeah, certainly one of my favorite places in the entire world. Yeah, and uh, you guys, you know, you were still young, but I, I, I know you were old enough by the time we left there to, to have memories of it. And the other thing that was nice is we were only uh, 30 to 40 minutes from our camp in Goolsboro, so if we had a chance we'd run over there and, and uh, get you guys acquainted with that spot pretty well. So, uh, so, but again, every time we moved, you know, if, if your mother had some sort of uh, work that she did or whatever, she'd have to pick up and leave, leave uh, that position, you know, so it was pretty difficult for her uh She's, she's, yeah, and I also was talking to her about um, it was a very wise choice for her to choose the career path that she did in 
medical assisting uh, because that is at least a job that you can find everywhere. So, um, you know, she was very strategic about that and uh, fortunately was able to find employment wherever we went, um, even if, you know, it was really frustrating. And I imagine she probably liked some of her positions much better than others and, you know, her friends at work and things like that. So that that's a challenge. But I mean, I think that comes with family is, you know, at some points you need to make sacrifices um, in the name of the betterment of, of the family and the group. Yeah. And I mean, the other, the other hard part, you know, you talk about military spouses is, you know, when I'd get transferred, I'd go somewhere and I had something in common with, uh, with somebody, you know, and, uh, cause boom, I just, you know, I got a job and, and I got uh, people that I, uh, have common things with, whereas mom, you know, we, we'd pull into a, an area and you got to kind of make new friends, but we, we seem to do that pretty good. You know, we get out where we young, have, have fun with other, uh, family members, coast guard and, and, uh, do stuff. And, and, uh, you know, it was certainly, a an experience, you know, I, I learned a lot, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, she probably has some other thoughts about it, but, uh, you know, I think all in all, it's worked out pretty good. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, she shared those thoughts on the Mother's Day episode for anyone that would like to hear them. Again, you can definitely go back and listen to that episode. She was really positive about all of it. And I know that, of course, there are some struggles with, um, you know, multiple different aspects of marriage and you know, being a military spouse, but she had a really positive outlook on it and just saw it as a big adventure and a, an opportunity to see some places that she may not have seen otherwise. So, um, you know, I, I really appreciated her attitude toward all of that and, and both of your attitudes toward all of that um, with, you know, me and Paul and raising us all over, all over the country. Um, so I know that, you know, we moved back to Hawaii after we were in Southwest Harbor um, and then we went up to the Pacific Northwest. Um, could you share a little bit more about what you were doing um, up in when we lived in Washington? Yeah, after we went back to Hawaii there in, in uh, 93 to 96, uh, I, I got orders to the Coast Guard Cutter Bluebell, which is in Portland, Oregon. And, and that that's a hundred foot uh, river tender and it's pretty, we pretty much took care of the, the uh, age navigation buoys from Ilwaco, uh, Washington, which is down at the mouth of uh, the Columbia down by Cape Disappointment and all the way up to Portland and then the part of the Willamette River and then we'd run the Columbia all the way up to Kennewick, Washington and then it branched off uh, to the Snake River so I'm not sure exactly how many hundreds of miles I'm guessing probably got to be around 400 miles of river that and might even be more than that that we maintained uh, for uh, age navigation buoys lights that that kind of stuff uh, and at that 
you know, I don't know, I think it was probably eight dams we had to lock through to get get all the way up into uh, Lewiston, Idaho. That's the uh, the furthest on the Snake River we went, which uh, was very unique, taking a Coast Guard boat to uh, Lewiston, Idaho. <laughs> I know. I was going to say that I, I think so, one of the reasons why I, I keep asking you about, you know, your responsibilities in each of these places is to demonstrate just the wide variety of places and things that the Coast Guard does, because I think, you know, it's natural to think, oh, the Coast Guard is out in the ocean. Um, but as you know, we've been hearing, you know, you were on the Great Lakes, you have done a bunch of work on rivers, um, you know, out in the Pacific Ocean. So you've kind of been all over the place. Um, so it's nice to hear uh, just the the depth of work that the Coast Guard is involved with. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, all my jobs are really um fun you know like you think back on it there were some times that you kind of scratch your head wondering what you were doing but uh i had a lot of a lot of fun doing what i did you know like that buoy tender there and and uh, the bluebell in portland oregon you know there was 15 guys on board and i had a warrant officer in charge and i was second in charge at the time and and uh you know it wasn't like you were out in the on the big pond rolling rock and you know you you steamed up and down the river and and um, most nights we tied up somewhere and, and uh, that guys wanted to get off and go recreate or whatever they could. And, and uh, so it wasn't too, too bad. And we weren't away from home. You know, most, my longest trips, if we went up to Lewiston or whatever, be a week or something like that. But still, if something happened at home, you could you'd get a phone call and you'd get a vehicle to come get you if there was a family crisis back home or something like that, you know, so... But yeah, so that was, uh, I mean, that, that's a highly sought after job too. I was very fortunate to get that. Not too many people get that job. And, uh, I was one of the fortunate ones to, uh, to have it. And so, uh, and that was a great area. We had, we made a lot of good friends there. I know you did, you still have friends in, 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 in that particular area that you stay in touch with now. So, uh, but there was always this thing that uh, growing up in Cumberland, Maine and going to uh, Greeley High School, I always had this strong pull to try to get you back and uh, have the experience of, and of a nice community and school and, and that kind of stuff. So fortunately, after uh, I was I got a promotion there, an advancement to senior chief, uh, they, they told me I had to to move so I asked them what was open in Maine so we came back uh, to Maine and actually I got back to Southwest Harbor but I knew I was getting close to 20 years at the time and and uh, Kelly and I both thought well we'll just do enough to 20 and then I'll, I'll get out and, and raise you kids in Cumberland so uh, we actually bought a house in Cumberland, as you know, uh, and I went to Southwest Harbor, which is three hours away, but uh, I'd go up Monday mornings and come home Fridays or Thursday nights, depend if I had enough time off or whatever. And, uh, and we made it work uh, for 10 months, and then I got a 
promotion to warrant officer. And uh, you guys were fifth and sixth grade at the time. So uh, the phone rang and the assignment officer said, uh, hey, you want to take warrant? And I, I said, sure. And they said, well, how about Portland? And I said, Portland, Maine? And and because uh, I just came from Portland, Oregon, and and uh, she she says, yeah, Portland, Maine. I said, perfect. I says I bought a house uh, ten miles from there, so uh, I hung up the phone, got a set of orders, and and transferred down to Portland. And uh, but that was that was a job. It was kind of like I changed changed jobs with the same company. I went into the marine safety field as a marine inspector at that time. And uh, it was good because I was kind of, I kind of felt like I had got to the top of where I, my learning abilities or capabilities and just kind of felt like 17 years of running boats and, and that kind of stuff that I, I needed some, a, a different challenge. And I uh, went into that Marine safety field and it was a, just a completely different job. And uh it, it kind of rejuvenated me a little bit. And I spent six years in Portland as a Marine inspector. Uh, so what was involved with the Marine inspector? Did you, so my understanding is you went out when big tanker ships would try to come into either Casco Bay or wherever. Um, I say wherever, because I'm not sure if that's the same role you had when you got transferred down to Boston. Um, and then make sure that they were safe to enter the harbor? Uh, basically, uh, you know, whether like Portland had a big crude oil terminal where they shipped, uh, they pumped uh, crude oil from Portland to uh, Montreal. And, uh, and then you also have other tankers that are bringing diesel, you know, uh, gasoline, that kind of stuff, home heating oil into Portland. So basically those those vessels, uh, they're required to have uh, us come on board and do an exam every year, whether it's in Portland or it could be another port. But if they were due for their annual exam, uh, then we'd get on board and, and, and check out the, the, the vessel's seaworthiness, obviously, and, and what, what their... Uh, condition of the vessel was, whether it was on deck or in the engine room, you know, run them through some drills, make sure the life, you know, life uh, boat drills were fine, fire drills, you know, check out the paperwork and, uh, and that kind of stuff. And that was uh, uh, very, very interesting. You know, obviously we had some, uh, we had a couple of issues where uh, we had some companies that weren't doing quite the right thing as far as their, their waste oil and that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, it's a lot of uh, digging and finding out what's going on and, and uh, you know, and that's with, with those kind of vessels, you know, they have these, this, in this particular situation, they have oily water separators, you know, they, they have waste oil and, and they have to process it through their oily water separator that comes out clean. And then they put their waste oil into a sludge tank and, and, uh, 
know, waste waste holding tank, then they deposit it ashore when they get some places. Well, some some companies didn't have the they weren't practicing that or some of their chief engineers weren't or somebody. So, uh, you know, they they get caught and they end up having to pay a pretty significant fine uh, in that respect. But most of them are pretty good, pretty good about, you know, doing what they're doing and do it right. But there's a few that, that didn't and uh, and they got caught, you know, and and sometimes you, you get tipped off by uh, crew members themselves. You know, they, they knew what they were told to do wasn't right. And, uh, we'd, we'd get a phone call or some, a letter or something. And uh, so that's how a lot of it uh, took place and then that was one part of my job there the other one is is a lot of uh, small passenger vessels that operate in the coast of maine or in any other place any other state where uh, they uh, are carrying passengers so they have to have a certificate of inspection to carry make sure they're, they're seaworthy and the crew knows what they're doing and, uh, with them you do a uh, an inspection once a year in in the water, and then every two years, you typically have them hauled out and check the hull and, and integrity and and that kind of stuff. Whether it's a wood boat, uh, fiberglass, steel, aluminum, all that kind of stuff, you kind of have to go through it and uh, make sure the uh, vessel's in good condition to uh, carry passengers for hire. So, very uh, very unique. I learned an awful lot. Met a lot of great people through uh through doing that kind of uh, work you know uh some of the people that especially in the in the state of maine or the new england area with wood boats the uh, the talent that's out there is just amazing what what some uh, of these craftsmen can do uh with building boats or maintaining wood boats it's really uh, uh interesting so uh yeah, you're giving me a show idea. I feel like someone, at least on this network, should get it in touch with like a, a wooden ship builder in Maine. I think that would be something people would be interested in learning more about. And then also speaking of, you know, characters and the people that you meet, um, you know, in your, your work with all of these ships coming in. Um, I always, I remember growing up, we'd always, you'd come home and and you would talk to us about the food that you got to eat on some of these boats because they're coming from all of these crazy places from around the world. Um, you know, and I feel like you got to try all different kinds of cuisines, um, while you were on board. And I always thought that that was an interesting work perk. Um, you know, just to, to hear about all the different types of food you got to try because all of these international boats were coming into port. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, obviously, we knew which boats we'd like to eat on and which ones we didn't. But, <laughs> but uh, most of the time, you know, the captains and the the uh, chief steward and, and uh, chief chief mate, you know, they took good care of us when they when we went on board. You know, and uh, and like you said, they had different different foods. You know, and some were really excellent. You know what I mean? So. Uh, yeah, that was that was always a, a benefit of of that type of of work, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. And then yeah, uh, and, and 
Uh, well, no, I was just going to say just on the, on the topic of, you know, seeing and experiencing different cultures, you have talked about your experience in Maine, all the way to remote islands in the Pacific. And then from the Pacific Northwest to the Great Lakes, you know, you've experienced some really special places with vastly different cultures and all of which, you know, all of these different places and cultures rely on the ocean and coast and clean water for various things. Um, but I'm wondering if you noticed um, anything that's, you know, similar, different about these cultures or are there interesting, you know, similarities, crazy differences or any fun facts that pop into your mind when reflecting on all of the different places that you've been? Uh, well, you know, that people are people and they all, you know, I, I guess maybe that's helped me along the way to uh, be able to communicate uh, with folks and, uh, uh, you know, everybody, most people are pretty good, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, I mean, we're coming on there to, to do an exam and oversight or whatever and, uh, and I don't know if I'm really answering your question the way you want it to be answered, but uh, just just interacting with with uh, people from other parts of the world, you know, uh, who are who for for the most part, a lot of them are are away from their families, you know, for uh, quite some time. So you'd get a chance to maybe even talk to them, you know. Uh, you know, how's your family at home or whatever, you know, and they're sacrificing to, to, uh, to make a living on the ocean and be away from home, but they're making a good living. So they, they, uh, they, they do sacrifice just so they can provide, uh, for some of their, you know, for their family in, in areas where they might not be able to make the kind of money that they are, uh, making on board ship, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, because there might be people listening to this that are in the same shoes that you were in nearly 30 years ago or 31 years ago when, you know, Paul and I were born, what advice do you have for anyone raising children in a military family? I would, I know it's, it, it depends on what's, what service you're in or what job capacity you have. Uh, you know, if you're, if, if you were a Navy SEAL or, or you were just an admin, I'm not saying just an administrative person, but just, you know, some, some branches of service are going to be a little bit more difficult or jobs and different services are going to be a little more difficult. It's going to have to take a lot of patience and understanding and, uh, uh, hard work, you know, and, and, uh, but in the same breath, I would say, you know, take each tour, do as much as you can in those areas because it, it does go by quick and then you can look back on it and, uh, you, you'll remember the good times, you know, uh, uh, for me, Home was a big thing, but, you know, once I broke away a little bit, you know, and then I, then I did come back, uh, I realized the amount 
of knowledge I gain just by getting away, you know, and, and uh, interacting with, like you say, different cultures and, and people from different parts of this country, or even in my situation, different parts of the world, you know, and, uh, uh, I guess embrace it the best you can. Uh, it, it's difficult because some of us, you know, in my younger days, we weren't making very much money, but it seemed like we, we got along. Okay. We had a lot of fun, you know, and, uh, and so you uh, you retired from the Coast Guard after 31 years, is that correct? Yeah, I was just uh, uh, a couple months shy of 31 years. Yeah, as a, uh, a chief warrant officer, W-4. Yeah, and uh, that was back in 2013, October of 2013. And, uh, you know, you... You had this amazing career with the Coast Guard, and when you retired, you were still quite young, um, and you know you still are quite young, um, but you just couldn't keep away from the water for very long, because instead of going out to pasture and just completely retiring, you went back out to sea, and... I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the organization that you currently work for now, because you're doing some really important and interesting work. Yeah. I mean, uh, how I got to where I'm at, uh, I had, I had some vacation time to burn before I actually retired October 1st. So I had an opportunity to go, to Alaska fishing for a couple of weeks with some friends. And uh, I went up there July 17th of 2013 and came back 31 July. I had a phenomenal time fishing and just what a beautiful state that is up in Alaska. But anyway, I got back and the phone rang. It was, it was a guy I'd met that lived on Shabig Island and he knew I was retiring, and and we we got along. Uh, he 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 liked me for some reason, whether it was because I liked to hunt and fish, or or uh, or whatever it was. He he wanted me to help him uh, carry some crew workers out to a place called Snow Island in Harpswell, Maine, and. Uh, they were doing a project out there for their family. So long story short, I, I said, sure, why not? So uh, I ran crew you know, workers every morning for, I don't know, like 10 months to Snow Island, which is, isn't very far offshore, but uh, the family that owned Snow Island, uh, they had one caretaker at the time and, uh, he uh, he was talking about them starting up this conservancy, and so I said, "Well, geez, uh, this this job I have right now is not going to last forever." I says, "Once the project's done, I'm, I'm not going to be needed anymore." I says, uh, "Well, put my name in the hat if you if you're looking for somebody." So uh, May of uh, 2014, they they hired me to come on, and uh, we started what they call uh, Cohog Bay Conservancy up in Cohog Bay, 
and uh, Hapsol, Maine. And uh, the, uh, the owner of, of Snow Island, him and his wife, uh, well, we, like I said, we started this in 2014. And, and basically what we're doing, uh, first thing we started out with is a, uh, a pump out boat that uh, allows us to offer a free service to any boaters in the area that come around Snow Island or Quahog Bay. Uh, they give us a call and if their holding tank needs to be pumped, we'll go out free of charge and, and uh, uh, pump them out. And then obviously we, we take it and have a, once that tank's full, we'll take it to shore and, and uh, have a septic truck come and, and uh, take take it away. And, and uh, so that's one of the services we provide. I guess in the summertime, we'll do anywhere from uh, 1,500 to 2,000 gallons uh, of, of waste that boaters have called us to get rid of. Uh, the other thing we do, we have an invasive species of crab called the green crabs up in uh, this area. And uh, we fish a hundred green crab traps. And I, I think the best year we had was we eliminated 10,000 pounds of them in one summer. I think it's been averaging about 5,000 pounds a summer, but it, it seems to be, there seems to be a little bit of an uptick in the uh, soft shell clam uh, population. I, I'm hoping we have some uh, influence on that be, uh, because they, they eat a lot of the, uh, the young clams, the crabs do. And then we, uh, we do trash pickup, obviously, in the in the in the bay, and uh, get that to the proper recycling or, uh, trash facility. And then the other thing we do, we do water quality sampling uh, in the bay. And then to fund this, we've started a, an oyster farm, and hopefully, at some point we will be producing enough oysters uh, to fund the whole conservancy. Uh, the name of the oysters we are selling are, are Snow Island oysters. And I think they're, they're fabulous uh, to eat. And uh, we started that in 2015. So I guess we're four years into it. And we will be expanding uh, this summer, and hopefully at some point we'll be up in the neighborhood of a couple million oysters on our leases, and, and quite possibly being selling, you know, 750 to thousand a year or something. Uh, we'll, we'll see where that goes, but so anyway, uh, we've got a new facility that's being built. That, uh, I think you saw it, Jenna, uh, last week. But it's going to have a spot for the conservancy itself, uh, a big room to process oysters, big walk-in cooler, uh, a lab, a uh, couple of apartments for uh, interns or, or young workers that are working with us. And uh, that is supposed to be completed uh, next month, I think, about a month from now, I think that will be all wrapped up. And uh, we've hired 
for the summer, three interns, one just graduated from Bowdoin College and two are going to Unity College. I think they'll be juniors this year. So they're helping us out with, with the conservancy. So uh, a very, very unique opportunity that I have. Yeah, and it's it's just been so amazing to watch the growth of this organization over the past few years um, and see you really come into your own as, you know, a brand. And, um, you know, it might seem like I'm biased because, you know, you're my dad, but those oysters are some of the best oysters I've ever had in my entire life. So just putting a plug in for listeners that if you're up in the Northeast and specifically Maine, um, look for Snow Island oysters. I believe you can order them. Um, And if you're familiar with Island Creek oysters, that's a very beloved oyster company in the Northeast. They've been partnering with Snow Island oysters. um, And it's a really, I think, great opportunity to where you're positioned because Portland is such a foodie capital of the world that, you know, seafood and uh, oysters and shellfish are in such high demand that there really is an opportunity there. Um, And it's really amazing just to see how popular these oysters have become. Um, I mean, the product speaks for itself, but then to take the proceeds from that and then to put it back into the organization which is helping keep this bay, Quahog Bay, clean, swimmable, fishable, um, so the whole community can benefit from it. I think it's a, a really nice model, um, and it's something that's getting a lot of attention um, because of all the great work you're doing. So it, I, I think it's it's just fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I uh, you know, when I got started with this thing, I, I kind of looked at it and. And uh, one of my first thoughts was, you know, uh, you know, it could be a model for for some other community or some other person that that has some resources, you know, in a in another area or whatever. I mean, it's you know, basically, you know, we're just trying to take this little little area, you call it a little piece of heaven or whatever, and just and just try to, to try to make this little area better. And uh, unfortunately, with the the family that I'm working for, uh, they had a vision like this, and uh, they have the resources. And and like I said, uh, uh, we uh, our hope is in a in a couple of years that uh, our generation, you know, generating the income from the oyster sales will. Uh, uh, cover cover the cost of salaries and boats and maintenance and all that stuff and uh, so I guess that's 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 our goal and it's pretty unique. I'm on the water all the time. Uh, we uh, so if anybody listening, you're up in this area. We we do have a few uh, educational tours. We do education outreach with uh, schools and and. Uh, organizations and that kind of stuff show them what we're doing and and uh so yeah i I feel pretty pretty blessed that i kind of fell into something like this and uh and we'll see where it goes from here 
Yeah. And for anyone that is, I mean, in the Northeast or not, if you're interested in checking them out and learning more, you can go to quahogbay.org. That's their website. And then on social media, I think they're just Quahog Bay Conservancy. So you can learn more about them there and follow along uh, with all of their projects. And it's such a beautiful part of Maine that, you know, they're always posting really great pictures of the scenery. So even if you follow them just for that, <laughs> um, it's a it's a pretty neat place. Um, and so, Dad, before we start to wrap up, I want to tie this back into the Father's Day theme um, by asking you a few more fatherhood-related questions. Um, just starting with two, how how would you describe your experience with fatherhood and being a parent? And you know, what are some of those either challenging or rewarding things? Well, I couldn't imagine going through life without being a, a father. And and I've been blessed, uh, so blessed that I have uh, you and Paul. I mean, both uh, unbelievable uh, young adults now. I mean... Uh, both of you have master's degrees, both out on your own doing great things. Uh, you know, that's, that was my, that is my life, I guess, growing up and having you guys. And, and uh, oh, it was just fabulous. Just, you know, whether I, it was me being able to take you to camp or take you fishing uh, or, uh, your ball games, those, those, uh, it was some of the most fun things in my life. Looking back on that, there was quite a void after you guys got out of high school. You know, I was kind of depressed for a while there because I didn't have any games to go to or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, empty nester syndrome. <laughs> but no, we were so blessed. I mean, you guys are, like I said, you guys are doing great things and, uh, uh, obviously, there's challenges on the way. I, I think like any parent, uh, you know, you, you get to the teenage years and there's challenges and then you go to college and there's challenges there, whether it's uh, financially or just you guys know more than I do or whatever. But uh, it, it all comes around. And I think you you uh, you guys are, uh, are, are great. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I couldn't couldn't be happier you know what i mean uh you're good addition to to our to our, our, all our family you know what i mean uh, the the greater family that we have is either on your mother's side or uh our side you know so uh yeah very proud and, and uh not sure what life would have been like with without you guys you know thank you and because I have learned so much from you. You've got me wondering, what is something that you have learned from your father? Oh, geez, what a great man. You know what I mean? I, uh, if I could be half the man he is, I'd be great. You know, I mean, geez, you, you know, you know your grandfather, but one thing is always, uh, he's always so positive, you know, it's, uh, uh, sometimes I have to kick myself a little bit to, you know, hey, things aren't that bad. Like today, uh, I, I had uh, 
the washing machine guy here and I'd spend a bunch of money trying to get it fixed and I couldn't get it fixed. So I had to go buy a new one, you know, but uh, as I'm going to get a new one, I said, well, you know, things aren't that bad, you know, things so whatever. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's all in the mindset. <laughs> yes. And he is a very positive man. He's always saying, remember to smile and you know, it's not so bad. And, uh, I mean, that man could, could pick you up even if you're in the worst mood yeah, ever. I mean, it's, it's all about, uh, laughing, you know, smiling. And, uh, and the other thing he, you know, he, he worked hard, you know what I mean? I, I think that's a good, good thing to, to have in your blood. You know, I think it, it's trickled down to you and Paul and uh, your mother works hard. I work hard. And uh, yeah, looking back, one thing about him is, I never really ever heard him say anything negative about anybody. And I mean, he had guys stiff him money on his business dealings, you know, and stuff like that, you know, not just a little money, but, you know, significant amount of money and, uh, you know, $10,000 one time here. And, and, uh, but I still never heard him say anything negative about anybody, you know? So, uh, I guess that's one thing. You know, I learned that, you know, everybody's different and uh, some people have good qualities and some don't have have some that aren't so good, you know, but. Yeah. And I think, you know, the moral of that lesson and something I've learned from him as well is that, you know, you're in control of your own actions. You can't control what the rest of the world is going to throw at you and what other people will do. Um, but you are in control of yourself and your emotions and your behavior. Um, and you can choose to take a negative viewpoint on the world and be negative in your reactions, or you can take the high road and stay positive and keep infusing that, that positive mindset throughout yourself and throughout everybody around you in your circles and your community. And I think that's a really powerful thing that really can be life changing is all in the mindset. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, uh, yeah. And, uh, so now that we've talked a little bit about what we've learned, what you learned from grandpa, what I've learned from grandpa, um, I'd love to give the listeners one last opportunity to learn from you. Um, we have a number of, you know, young professionals and lifelong learners and just really amazing, passionate people that listen to this show and this network. Um, and I always like to leave them with a bit of advice. So I'm wondering, um, you know, what advice do you have for our listeners? And that can be relating to anything, honestly, from life to career to, you know, whatever, whatever pops into your mind. What advice do you have for our listeners? Well, again, try to stay positive. Uh, I would say have some sort of faith, you know. And uh, talk to people. I, I, you know, I don't know. I think when I was younger, I probably was a little shy and didn't talk too much. But as I as I uh, have grown older, uh, uh, it's amazing when you when you talk to somebody, you you might find out you have something really in common with them. Uh, they. Uh, know somebody you know it's 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 uh kind of amazing i i'm always trying to uh, engage a conversation with somebody whether i'm standing 
at, at the counter getting a coffee or uh, could be most anyway, you know, it's uh, some of the strangest things have happened by just talking to somebody that <laughs> I didn't even know I knew uh, or, uh, or they knew somebody uh, or whatever. Just there's a lot of, a lot of good people out there. And I, I, uh, I certainly enjoy uh, having conversation with, uh, with people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I I love that advice. And I second that, you know, everyone get out there and make those human connections. We're so often just engulfed in our phones or our own minds um, that we might miss a really serendipitous moment or a really important connection that might be life changing. So, um, you know, in a polarizing world, get out there and, and start trying to bridge the gap by talking to one another. Um, and Dad, I happy Father's Day. I I love you just so much, you know, so much that words can't even describe it, but thank you for your service to our country and everything that you've done for me and our family and your continued work to keep Maine beautiful and healthy. You are just the most incredible human and I am so proud of you and all of your accomplishments and I couldn't have asked for a better dad and role model. Um, so thank you so much for spending some time with me on my show today. Well, hey, uh, the feeling's mutual. I I uh, couldn't be happier, like I said, and uh, I'm glad I could be a good father. There's uh, there's probably a lot of kids out there that need one, you know, and I'm just glad that uh, you feel that way and that I that I could be and I can can still be a good father, you know. So. <laughs> I, uh, I'd also like to thank the listeners, especially all the fathers and military families out there. I, I know that it's not always an easy lifestyle, but it's a rewarding one that gives you a really unique perspective on the world. So thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you all have a fantastic Father's Day. And if you like this show and want to hear more, subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. Rates and reviews are always appreciated. And you can find us on Facebook at the American Shoreline Podcast Network and on Twitter at Coastal News 365. And if you would like to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter. It's at Yenna Benna. It's Y-E-N-N-A, B-E-N-N-A. And then on Instagram, it's the same thing, but Yenna has three N's in it. Um, So find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines. Mm -hmm.